Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Today on the show, we're talking about some state-level and possible executive order action to protect women's reproductive rights, a new round of sanctions that the U.S. has imposed on Iran, and it's Friday. So it's time for another episode of the Red Spin Report. And later on in the show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we can move on... Former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has been assassinated in Japan during a campaign appearance for parliamentary elections. Abe was making a speech for a candidate in the Liberal Democratic Party, or the LDP, which he used to lead. But the party's name is a stark mischaracterization of what they actually represent. And there is where we get insight into this assassination. Abe was the longest-serving prime minister of Japan and was an ultra-right Japanese nationalist who wanted to remilitarize the country. He was part of uh, the leadership of the ultra-right-wing Nippon Kaiji, whose stated goal were the reconstruction and remilitarization of the Japanese empire. Abe was a staunch denier of Japanese militarism, Japanese history, and the abuse of comfort women, women from Korea, China, and other occupied territories who Japan forced to become military sex slaves during World War II. He even worshipped at the Yasukuni Shrine, where Japanese war criminals are buried. During his tenure as prime minister of Japan, Abe escalated tensions with North Korea, South Korea, China, and Taiwan. He enacted security reform legislation in 2015 that allowed for Japanese soldiers to fight in foreign conflicts anywhere called collective security alongside, guess who, the United States. He was a key enabler of the U.S.-China escalation in the Pacific and was the architect of the Quad Agreement between Japan, India, the United States, and Australia. So under Abe, Japan was basically a client state of the United States, its willing bulldog in the Pacific. And Abe's government was very much like the right-wing leaders and their governments that rose to power in Brazil and Colombia, except he was in power longer. In fact, the LDP itself is an autocratic coalition of the Japanese business class, political class, and Yakuza, or gangster class, that was propped up and put in power by none other than the Central Intelligence Agency. The CIA began operating in post-war Japan, reinstating former war criminal Kodama Yoshio and handpicked one of Japan's prime ministers in order to suppress communist socialist movements that were growing in the country. Rather than have a socialist communist government in Japan, the CIA instead chose Nobusuke Kishi. He was one of the worst war criminals of the 20th century who committed mass murders and enslaved the people of the Manchukuo province in Manchuria, northern China, to fuel the Japanese war machine in World War II. Nobushi Kishi is Shinzo Abe's grandfather. The assassin, Tetsuya Yamagami, has been arrested. 
The 41-year-old former Japanese Navy veteran used a handmade gun to shoot Abe. There are questions regarding the motive for the assassination, as well as whether this person is mentally stable, since he's provided conflicting and sometimes nonsensical statements regarding his actions. But I don't think there's any question that there is a major shift happening in the world and the right-wing governments that are all in league with the bloodthirsty imperialist power of the United States that have worked together to cause so much suffering and excuse it in order to hold on to that power are being held to account. Derek Chauvin admitted publicly for the first time that he kept his knee on George Floyd's neck for nine and a half minutes, even after Floyd became unresponsive, resulting in his death. Chauvin admitted that he willfully deprived George Floyd of his right to be free from unreasonable seizure, including unreasonable force by a police officer. And these admissions came as Chauvin pled guilty to violating George Floyd's civil rights in federal court, where Chauvin was sentenced to 21 years for his guilty plea. It's worth noting that Chauvin did not apologize for his actions, not even to Floyd's children, to whom he had the nerve to say that he wished them, quote, all the best in their lives, and they have excellent guidance in becoming good adults, end quote. What in the world does this man know about being a good adult? And what right did he even have to say anything to that man's children, the man that he murdered, if it wasn't an apology for taking their father's life? He should have said nothing to them. His words were an insincere insult. And I honestly think they were actually a slick dig since Chauvin is also appealing his murder conviction, arguing that jurors were intimidated by the protests that followed the killing of George Floyd and prejudiced by heavy pretrial publicity. Remember, that Derek Chauvin was found guilty of murder and manslaughter in state court and was sentenced to 22 and a half years in prison. He'll serve the state and federal sentences concurrently in a federal prison. Chauvin's attorney, Eric Nelson, wrote that Chauvin's, quote, remorse will be made apparent to this court, end quote. It was not. But at this point, remorse from him isn't really worth anything. And after nearly an entire month, Joe Biden will finally sign an executive order today to help safeguard women's access to abortion and contraception. The executive order directs the Health and Human Services Department to take action to protect and expand access to medication abortion approved by the Food and Drug Administration. It will also direct the department to ensure women have access to emergency medical care, family planning services, and contraception, including intrauterine devices or IUDs. There will also be provision for pro bono attorneys and other organizations to provide legal counsel for patients seeking an abortion as well as abortion providers. It took him in the White House a whole month to figure out a response to something they knew was coming since at least the Trump administration and was being plotted on very publicly by the GOP for decades. But it's never too late to finally get your act together, I suppose. I do know that this executive order is just in time for campaigning for the midterm elections as the Democrats hope to keep the Republicans from taking control of Congress in the midterm elections. 
Democrats have a slim majority in the House of Representatives and control the evenly divided Senate through Vice President Kamala Harris's tie-breaking vote that she never uses, while it's never too late to do what needs to be done to protect women's right to health care, even if it should have been done a month ago, it might be too late to save the Democrats from losing Congress and ultimately the White House. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And let's keep this conversation going about the effort in the states to protect women's reproductive rights. And I'm happy to be joined by Eliza Lucero, an organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation in Denver, Colorado, for this conversation. Eliza, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you coming on to talk about some important developments at the state level uh, to protect women's uh, reproductive uh, rights and freedom with the governor of Colorado, uh, Jared Polis, signing an executive order Wednesday that says the state will not cooperate with other states' investigations into people who received abortions or reproductive health care in Colorado and protects people working in the state from being disciplined for performing such services. What is the legislation that Governor Polis signed? And can you break it down for us? What, why is this so uh, important, and uh, particularly when we're talking about the efforts other states are uh, undertaking to not just criminalize abortion, but to criminalize the people who uh, seek abortions and perform them and provide assistance for those people? Yes. So Colorado is a state that has, you know, relatively strong abortion protections in place. And this piece of legislation, this executive order that Jared Polis recently signed, um, which, as you said, uh, prohibits any state entities in Colorado from cooperating with any investigations or prosecutions of those that are abortion recipients in Colorado or abortion providers um, is really monumental because, as you stated, these other states right now are not only criminalizing um, or making abortions uh, a felony, um, but there there will no doubt be lawsuits from these states um, requesting medical records and um, information about people that are traveling to states um, that have now become, you know, the nearest source of abortion services for so many people. Um, and in Colorado, we are surrounded by states that abortion will very soon be a felony. So this piece of legislation is monumentally important to protecting um, you know, women and others of childbearing age, um, Colorado is about to have be the nearest source of abortion services for an additional 1.2 million um, women. And so ensuring that Colorado is truly a state where abortion is adequately accessible to everyone who needs it is really a prerogative right now as we're living in this post-Roe society. Yeah, and the the uh, executive order, the Reproductive Health uh, Equity Act, 
was signed earlier uh, in the year in Colorado that codified abortion and other reproductive health care in the state. But it also directs state agencies and departments to, quote, pursue opportunities and coordinate with each other to protect people and entities who are providing, assisting, seeking or obtaining reproductive health care in Colorado. How would this um, provide assistance to people who will travel across state lines uh, from those states, as you say, that are uh, about to uh, criminalize abortion? How will this in- enable people to be protected from legislation um, uh, from their own state or to, sorry, to be protected from uh, criminalization from their own state if they seek uh, health reproductive health care in Colorado? Yes. So this will provide um, increased protections uh, because our state will be refusing to cooperate with any um, request for arrest or extradition of any person that's being criminally charged in their own state. Um, and as I stated earlier, the barring of in, in this executive order and along with this previous piece of legislation, we he has barred the sharing of medical records with law enforcement entities of other states. So this um, this was such an important part of this legislation because there's so many loopholes for states to request medical records to um, find out if someone has um, received an abortion or to um, find out um, if an abortion provider, say, a nurse from another state came to Colorado and performed an abortion here. Um, Colorado has said that we will not, um, you know, we will not give you any sort of their medical records. We will not support um, any arrest warrants or provide any um, or cooperate in any extradition processes, um, you know, where a person charged with a criminal violation of the law of another state where the violation allegedly involved, you know, assisting with securing um, or getting or being the recipient of reproductive health care. Um, so um, so this is um, really strong. It's extending the protections that exist in Colorado to those that will be inevitably traveling here to obtain abortion services. And, you know, this move from the governor uh, is the result of uh, on-the-ground activism, uh, toes on the 10 toes on the ground, people power uh, that— uh, ultimately culminated in a win for the protection of women's reproductive rights. So what was that organizing like and how did it coalesce uh, to result in in Colorado becoming a safe place for abortions? Yes, Colorado, um, you know, when the decision came down, when the Dobbs decision came down a couple weeks ago and um, Roe was overturned, there was massive outpouring of tens of thousands of people in the streets. You know, we saw this all across the country. And in Colorado, there was no exception. Um, as I stated earlier, we are a state that has relatively strong abortion protections in place. But the people in the streets made it clear that this was not the time to sit back and or, or to celebrate what we have here, but rather acknowledge that this decision by the Supreme Court is really one that is a declaration of war on over half of the population of this country and that we have a duty in these states that do have strong protections to really urgently prepare right now for what this post-growth society will look like, which means that 
states that do have strong protections are going to face an in, an increased need, um, a massive increase of need. Um, and so what we've really done um, in the PSL and, and as far as like leading and guiding um, this outrage from all of these people at this decision is we thought, what does Colorado need to ensure that no one who comes here for abortion services is turned away due to a lack of capacity and that those who are providing abortion services or seeking abortion services here have every protection possible. Um, and so, you know, last Saturday we called an action um, and several thousand people turned out to support these demands on Governor Jared Polis, um, calling on him to do um, what he has just done to we, we called on him demanding that he issue an executive order, um, you know, prohibiting any state entity from cooperating in the investigation or prosecution of abortion recipients to providers providers and that he also prohibit the sharing of medical records with law enforcement entities. And, um, you know, we're, we're also calling on him to issue an executive order to provide emergency funding to clinics who are about to experience this this gross increase need and, um, you know, who are not right now in a position to handle that capacity. And we marched with thousands of people to the governor's mansion in Denver and, um, you know, stated our demands loud and clear, posted them on the gate and um, did a mass campaign uh, on social media, calling for him to sign these executive orders and, also, that following, uh, a couple days after, in the week, we had a phone zap of his office where thousands and thousands of people were calling to make it known that these are our demands. And if you are a friend of women and if abortion, if, if abortion is really going to be, um, if Colorado is going to be a state where abortion is truly upheld as a right, then this is what has to happen. And... Governor Polis on Wednesday signed the executive order, you know, prohibiting state entities from cooperating investigations, um, barring the sharing of medical records, um, stating that Colorado will not extradite anyone and that Polis will do everything in his power to ensure that those who come here are safe. Um, and that's a ginormous win for the people um, who have been out in these streets making sure that you know, Democrats here know that this is not the time for celebration. This is not the time to pat themselves on the back for, for the wins that we have in Colorado. But now is the time to to fight back and to there's always more work to be done, um, you know, living in uh, a world without Roe. Absolutely. There is more work to be done. And the work that you just outlined, organize, uh, you know, get together, organize and state your demands, mobilize action, uh, direct action to uh, uh, deliver those demands to those in power, push those demands through continued pressure on those in power. And that is how the people win. And with the last couple of minutes, um, I, I want to know what your thoughts are about Joe Biden's executive order that he uh, is to sign today uh, uh, protecting uh, women's reproductive health in this country a month after uh, Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Uh, what, what, what are your thoughts on what it does and what more needs to be done even in life? of it 
Yeah, well, I think that that Joe Biden's signing of this executive order a month after Roe um, also speaks to the power of of the people in the streets because uh, this lack of urgency that is being seen in the in the White House and in Congress that are both controlled by Democrats right now is astounding. Um, so, you know, this coming a month later is, I would also credit to a result of people expressing their outrage um, and resistance to um, the Supreme Court's decision in the streets. Um, but I, this executive order is, is clearly not enough. What needs to be done right now is there needs to be a federal vehement push to to end the filibuster to you know pass legislation that does codify Roe a you know the Congress had the opportunity to pass the Women's Health and Protection Act very after the decision was leaked after the Dobbs decision was leaked before it was passed and they failed to do so even knowing what was at stake so this executive order is, uh, is, you know, in my opinion, too little, too late, and there needs to be a much stronger push by the Democratic Party to, um, to codify, you know, abortion rights in this country, and anything short of that is is unacceptable at this point. We've seen what the Supreme Court is planning on doing, and um, for Biden to to come out and say that we need to have peace right now in the face of this incredibly violent decision that will, you know, kill women across this country. Um, and then to sign a, a, a relatively weak executive order is not enough. So we will be, you know, out in the streets continuing our demands and calling on the federal government to to fix this problem that they have failed to en- enshrine um, all these years. Absolutely. Well, we are out of time for this segment. want to thank Eliza Lucero so much for joining me for uh, this segment. We will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about a new round of sanctions imposed upon Iran by the United States. And we are happy to be joined for this conversation by Mazda Majidi, longtime anti-war and social justice activist who is from Iran and has written extensively on the nuclear deal and other issues pertaining to Iran and the Middle East. Mazda, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Jackie, for having me. I'm glad to be here. Glad to have you here to break down yet another round of sanctions that have been imposed on Iran just this Wednesday, where the U.S. uh, Department of the Treasury and the State Department 
issued separate groups of sanctions on various entities involved in Iranian uh, oil trade with China and other East Asian countries. Can you break down for us the significance of these new sanctions, uh, particularly when I thought the U.S. Uh, was supposed to be trying to negotiate and, and revive the JCPOA with Iran? This doesn't seem like this would help do that at all, Mazda. That's very correct, Jackie. Uh, specifically, the uh, new round of sanctions are uh, aimed at petrochemicals. And we have to realize that Iran has been trying to deal with the sanctions, the all-inclusive sanctions in terms of trade, that has uh, most directly impacted oil exports. And so developing petrochemicals and selling products like um, motor oil and the like has been one of the many, many ways that Iran has tried to deal with this issue. Uh, but as you said, yes, it's very interesting. On the one hand, the U.S. is um, uh, expressing uh, apparent interest in reviving the JCPOA. Uh, on the other hand, while the negotiations are going on, Although it's at a lull right now, it's um, not advancing very well. And we can talk about that in a minute, what's going on and why it's not advancing. But as it's happening, another round of sanctions, more pressure on Iran from the Biden administration. Yeah, definitely. The talks are, are very interesting and in why uh, eight rounds of talks in Vienna have not produced uh, much movement toward reviving the JCPOA. Yet yeah, I do wonder why, why have eight rounds of talks not produced anything but more sanctions from the United States government? Well, when we hear the corporate media's coverage of this issue, uh, you'll hear all kinds of details and they'll create this image that Iran has this hardline leadership and they just don't want to negotiate. Sometimes in the coverage, if we're lucky, we'll hear kind of a side note that, well, the, the Trump administration pulled out of the JCPOA. And the thing that's almost never mentioned is that the Trump administration pulling out of the JCPOA was not the JCPOA, by the way, is the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which was the name given to the agreement that they reached in 2015. The agreement had no out clause for anybody. Uh, in fact, it had uh, details about uh, arbitration methods should one of the involved parties have, uh, you know, grievances and concerns about the agreement. So in complete violation of international law, the Trump administration just pulled out and reimposed sanctions on Iran. Um, now, you might think that once the Biden administration uh, takes over, they'll just say, which Biden and other Democrats at the time said, well, you know, this is in violation. And, we, you know, the U.S. government has made a commitment that we have to uh, uh, live with, the, you know, even the next administration, the one after that, whether they like it or not, by international law, once a government of a country uh, signs an agreement, that country is uh, legally bound by that agreement. They can't just pull out because uh, the new president or prime minister, whoever doesn't like that agreement. 
So when Biden takes over, instead of saying, well, you know, our bad, well, let's just, we'll just go to compliance, we'll remove the sanctions. Instead of that, the Biden administration restarted saying, oh, well, Iran is not in compliance, which was kind of interesting to say, of course, after three years uh, when the sanctions had been reimposed, of course, Iran was not in compliance anymore. Uh, but rather than um, remove the sanctions, and, um, you know, go back to the terms of the agreement, which Iran had fully said and committed to going to, they started saying, oh, no, Iran, you need to first go back to compliance. You need to first ship out your enriched uranium, and then we'll talk about the U.S. Uh, removing the sanctions. So a lot of the back and forth going on right now has to do with that. Who does what when? But from the U.S. perspective, because of the existing anti-Iran atmosphere in the media and in Congress, and because being so-called tough on Iran, you know, apparently, at, according to the perception of the politicians, wins votes, um, the U.S. is not willing to give any concessions. And from Iran's perspective, they're saying, first of all, I mean, we didn't violate the agreement, the U.S. did, so it's the U.S. that has to come back in compliance. And then the other thing that they're asking for is some sort of a guarantee. What's to guarantee for Iran if they come back in compliance that in another couple of years, if a new administration gets elected, they'll pull out again and they'll start all over again. So those are some of the dynamics going on. There's been, as you said, there's been several rounds of uh, negotiations in Vienna. In fact, they recently made in Qatar um, uh, and it appeared for a minute or two that, uh, you know, the new talks might generate some results. But again, uh, the meetings ended without any apparent progress. Yeah, and it seems that one of the sticking points, uh, aside from the others that you mentioned that the United States has, that their manufactured sticking points of claiming that Iran is not in compliance uh, with uh, the agreement, is that uh, Iran is demanding the removal of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps from the U.S. terror list. Why, why is the United States opposed to doing this in order to uh, move this deal forward? Well, the Iranian military, the Revolutionary Guard, is one of the wings of Iran's military. Um, and the U.S. established... Of course, it, it goes back to you know, the designation by the State Department of an entity as a terrorist organization. The Revolutionary Guard has not, by any accepted definitions of terrorism, engaged in, you know, assassinations or anything of the sort. The um, uh, involvement of the Revolutionary Guard outside of the borders of Iran has been mainly in Syria and to a less extent in Iraq, and their targets have been Daesh or uh, the Islamic State. Um, and the, Iran uh, feels that the designation of essentially its militaries or military or one of the major wings of its military as a terrorist organization, in addition to providing an excuse for the U.S. to continue the sanctions against Iran is an insult to say that the, the military 
uh, of a country is a terrorist organization. I mean, if you think about it quite honestly, the U.S. military has involved in so many assassinations, bombings, um, invasions around the world without any justifications that the U.S. military is much more um, uh, appropriate, uh, can much more appropriately be designated as a terrorist organization. But yes, uh, Jack, you're absolutely right. Iran is not willing to have to come back to compliance with the JCPOA only to see that some of the sanctions that will be temporarily re removed be reimposed again under the excuse that it's the Revolutionary Guard and it's a terrorist organization, which, by the way, the Revolutionary Guard, just like, you know, the, U the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, has a lot of development uh, project, construction projects within the country as well. And there is, of course, always the subtext of uh, these U.S. sanctions uh, that are imposed on Iran. And, and the subtext is aggression toward China or punishing countries that do business with China. Is that really the case here where uh, these sanctions are, are designed to punish uh, countries like Iran that have been doing business with China? And I'm wondering if they will actually backfire the way that the sanctions the U.S. has imposed uh, on Russia have not done so well to weaken Russia as the U.S. hoped they would do? Uh, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that's happening that has happened really is that China has some domestic um, oil, but not enough to meet its increasing demands. And it has been dealing, not just China, of course, South Korea, India, and others, but um, a lot of trade has been done uh, between Iran and China. But you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that, um, it kind of goes back to the U.S. invasion of Iraq under the Bush administration. What uh, Bush too was striving for was um, kind of establishing or re-establishing the absolute dominance of the world by the U.S. military and diplomatically as well. And now that goal, well, with the relative defeat of the invasion of Iraq and their relative defeat in sort of recapturing Syria and the redrawing the map of the Middle East, the goal of dominance seems far less accessible. And when they sanction the country, on the one hand, and we have to kind of emphasize to um, our to, to the listeners that, you, I mean, U.S. sanctions are not just U.S. sanctions. There's punishments for everyone. It's not just saying the U.S. will not trade with you. It's saying anyone who trades with you internationally will get punished, will get fined, will get sanctioned, and so forth. But on the other hand, with the rising power and influence of China and its ability to, uh, you know, provide an outlet to a lot of the countries that are really victimized by these sanctions, the sanctions seem to be less effective. And there's, there's ways to get around the sanctions. No, they're not as effective as uh, rendering the sanctions uh, totally ineffective. But at the same time, the sanctions on Iran, while it has had a lot of negative impact on the economy, it hasn't really paralyzed the economy. The, um, uh, and so it is not producing the effect of forcing the 
country to go to its knees and say, okay, I'll accept your terms, whatever. Uh, so you're right. The, the, I mean, the influence and the dominance of the U.S. isn't nearly as complete as it used to. And of course, the um, impact of China, the economic power of China, um, and the role of Russia, particularly in the United Nations, uh, has had um, an impact in, at least in some instances, providing uh, sanctioned countries with an outlet. Yeah. And, you know, in the last couple of minutes, something you just said raised a question for me. Since the United States doesn't have the the power that it used to to just force countries to bend to their will and these sanctions uh, do not have the effect that the U.S. uh, wants them to have, that it's not destroying the Iranian economy uh, or the economy of other countries because they are doing business with China. Is there a need to continue uh, with these negotiations to revive the JCPOA? Is there a need to continue to uh, negotiate with a, a, a malign actor such as the United States government that doesn't enter into negotiations honestly at all? Well, that's a very interesting point. I think what you just mentioned, Jackie, has been really the subject of intense talks within the Iranian ruling establishment. Um, on the one hand, uh, part of the people, I mean, everyone agrees that the sanctions, even the JCPOA itself was unjust because it's, you know, it's imposing sanctions on a country for enriching uranium, for having a um, nuclear program that has had no military component at all. And who's imposing the sanctions? A country that not only has thousands of nuclear weapons, but has used nuclear weapons as well. So the sanctions, the all kinds of restrictions on Iran's nuclear technology itself are unfair. Yes, granted that Iran was forced to sign it, but that didn't make it fair. So that's been, you know, one side of the talks within the within Iran between the president and Khamenei and others uh, has been, you know, we need to end the sanctions so we can sell our oil, increase oil production, increase our exports internationally, bring in imports, including, you know, during the COVID crisis, Iran had to really struggle. They had to struggle to bring in masks, uh, vaccines, all kinds of supplies because of the sanctions, because even though technically the sanctions do not include, um, uh, you know, medical supplies, uh, all kinds of um, trade um, gets stopped because a lot of companies don't want to deal with the mess, don't want to deal with the threat. Uh, and they worry about, you know, having to prove that this was um, medical supplies and so forth. So that's on the one hand, part of the uh, Iranian um, uh, ruling establishment wants to end the sanctions to uh, re-enter international trade on a you know normal and fair basis. But on the other hand, uh, it, it goes to what what you were saying. They you know part of them are saying, well, you know the sanctions aren't as bad as they used to. We've already learned how to cope with it. We've built all kinds of temporary and semi-permanent institutions and mechanisms to work around the sanctions, is it even worth it to have the sanctions removed possibly for two years only to be reimposed? Is it not better 
is it not more stabling, uh, a stabling effect for our economy to just continue as we are and deal with the fact that the sanctions are there, but they're not quite going to paralyze us anymore. Mm, definitely. Thank you so much for breaking this down for us today. I appreciate you coming on Mazda Majidi. Uh, we are out of time. We're going to leave it there, but we will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, so it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, co-host of Red Spin Sports. Nate, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, Jackie. How's it going? It's going really well, and I'm really glad that you are able to join us today to talk about the breaking news in sports, I suppose, where Brittany Griner has apparently uh, pled guilty to uh, charges against her in a plea deal in Russian court. So the question uh, that's on a lot of people's minds as people are uh, calling for her release is where her case goes from here, what will it take to bring her home? And I think it's really interesting, Nate, that uh, Griner and her family made a direct plea to President Joe Biden to uh, bring Griner home by um, going ahead with a, a proposed uh, prisoner swap that Russia had floated a, a few weeks ago uh, that they would be willing to consider uh, returning Brittany Griner uh, in exchange for uh, a particular person who uh, is of interest to the Russian government being held in U.S. prisons. But I, I don't see the Biden administration making a move on that because as far as we know, they haven't even returned Griner's family's calls. So what, what goes on? What happens now with uh, Brittany's case? Uh, and, and what does this all say about uh, just how the Biden administration uh, is concerned about U.S. athletes uh, in general? Yeah, so I mean, the, the, a lot of people have been making the, the sort of, a you know, the, putting up the example like, oh, if this was LeBron, you know, there would be action that would have already been taken. And, you know, Possibly so. I mean, you have like you would you know, just given the nature of U.S. society and LeBron's popularity, there there probably would be a bigger groundswell. But uh, I, I, you know, in this case, though, I really do. It, you know, it, it took Brittany Griner's um, wife, actually, uh, Sorrell Griner, going on you know CBS this morning, um, you know, a few days ago actually, and uh, and kind of challenging the fact that like they hadn't you know heard from Biden for, for them to actually get a phone call from the president and vice president Kamala Harris on Wednesday. Um, and then according to a readout of the call, this is in the Time Magazine piece, you know, Biden reassured Sorrell that, quote, he is working to secure Britney's release as soon as possible. Biden also said that he's working to secure the release of another guy, Paul Whelan, uh, American former security executive who's been convicted of espionage in Russia. So they're, they're, they're kind of like tying these things together. Let's not forget that there was also... Um, 
not long ago, there, there is precedent here because there was um, the case of Constantine Yaroshenko. There was a pilot uh, sentenced to 20 years in 2011 for drug smuggling in the U.S., and he was returned to Russia in exchange for Trevor Reed, the former U.S. Marine that was held since 2019 on uh, charges that he assaulted two police officers. Um, but what's really interesting is that, um, you know, the judge who presided over the case of Victor Bout, the uh, convicted, um, you know, international you know, you know, arms dealer who uh, Nicholas Cage played in the uh, 2005 film Lord of War, um, is, is speaking out and saying that, like, if it weren't for the 25-year sentence she was required by statute to give Bout, she would have given him something much lighter, like about 10 years, and it's been about 10 years since he was sentenced. Let's not forget, he wasn't out. The whole charges against him were that he was uh, selling arms to the FARC in Colombia, mm -hmm. thereby supporting a state sponsor of terrorism. Um, and But let's look at the circumstances. He was uh, approached by an undercover DEA officer in Thailand, in a, Thailand in a sting operation in 2011 who represented himself as a representative of the FARC. And as a result, facilitated that deal. So the judge spoke on this, that there wasn't like a, sort of a political intent necessarily for him to go like seek out a group like the FARC or what, you know, any other group that would be considered an enemy of U.S. interests. So uh, the notion that they couldn't release him after serving 10 years of a 25-year sentence um, really shows how much, how little they actually do care about getting Griner out, in my opinion. And the fact they're also trying to tie her release to also getting Whelan out, a guy that's been accused of espionage and, 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 um, and will be a much, I feel like, much more high value, like, you know, sort of exchange the Russians would want because of that, the nature of that charge as opposed to a cannabis cartridge. Um, she's truly being held up as a pawn. And, 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 uh, and the reality is that when the, the special military operation started February 24th, I mean, her timing just could not have been worse. If you, if you listen to her plea agreement, um, she said that this was just a mistake in packing. It was, uh, you know, that she was careless. She's guilty of being careless of that. She had no intent to bring, uh, you know, illegal cannabis into, into the Russian Federation. And, uh, but I don't think this would have gotten to the point it is now if it weren't for the fact that we have such poor diplomatic relations, relations now and intentionally so. And as a result, you don't have those back channel relationships that can oftentimes work to facilitate the release of, a. Uh, of, uh, of someone like Brittany Griner, and, and in the context of the, the, the whole the sanctions against Russia, um, you know, the, and, and, the, and the, the whole West being collectively united against Russia, sadly, she has, uh, you know, Russia feels they can't let her be just, just released there without, you know, getting a price in return, and, and that's just where we are right now. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a couple of things about uh, the, this entire saga. You know, first of all, you know, Brittany Griner is absolutely a victim of uh, exactly what you said, the, the really uh, poor, terrible, non-existent and, and acrimonious uh, relations, a diplomatic relationship uh, between the United States and Russia. And that is entirely the fault of the United States government, particularly now, uh, as clearly the United States government has, with along with the EU and NATO, have decided to wage this proxy war against Russia in Ukraine. And Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, let's never forget that he said the goal is to weaken Russia. Russia, a country that has actually done nothing 
to the United States to warrant this kind of uh, aggression. Joe Biden has called uh, Vladimir Putin a war criminal, even though there are no there is no evidence uh, of war crimes being committed by Russian uh, troops. But the Ukrainian army has been bombing the hell out of uh, of its own people in Ukraine since 2014. Uh, they don't talk about that. And here you have Brittany Griner, who is an athlete who just goes to Russia to play in the off season to make extra money because, and, and I think this is a part of this that people are kind of missing when they make the LeBron comparison, Nate. If she were LeBron James, she probably wouldn't have had to play off season in, in a league in another country at all, because she would have been making LeBron James money. But the reason she has been playing in Russia and and many athletes, many uh, basketball players, especially women basketball players and uh, the minor leagues do play in foreign leagues is because they don't make a lot of money as the top tier NBA stars, male NBA stars make. So, I mean, I think there is a... a there is the juxtaposition of the acrimony of the U.S. government, the aggression of the U.S. government toward Russia, and overlooking defending one of its citizens uh, and doing everything, really doing everything it can to bring them home because all they really have to do is release uh, Victor Boot. But they don't want to do that because Victor Boot supplied arms to a leftist organization, FARC, in Colombia that the U.S. supported a brutal white right-wing government to suppress, and they didn't succeed. <laughs> so they're willing to let Brittany Griner, the U.S. government is willing to let Brittany Griner sit in jail in uh, Russia uh, because they, they don't want to give the arms dealer to uh, that, that gave arms to FARC back to Russia. And people are missing the fact that, no, this would never have been LeBron James because LeBron James would never have to pl- uh, play in, a, in another league to make extra money because male NBA players just make a lot of money and women NBA players just don't. I mean, there's so much, I think, that's being missed here that really does uh, need to be raised, Nate. Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, it's not even making extra money. I mean, the money she makes playing in the in the Russian league she's played in, uh, she makes that's like the lion's share of her of her basketball income. Now, I'm not including endorsement deals and like the other sponsorship stuff, but I'm talking about direct, you know, compensation for on court play. Um, it's more than the WNBA, which also has a very re- short season relative to the NBA. They start like in May and wrap up, I believe, in September. So, um, which then you know, so, for, and so I don't know. A lot of people pointed out like why that is, if there's, you know, but that's that's another thing. And when it comes to Victor Bowder Boot, I'm not sure exactly the right pronunciation. It's important to note that he didn't even technically sell to the FARC. He sold to a DEA, you know, <laughs> team of agents in Thailand posing as the FARC, going to him to facilitate this to right. try to entra- as an entrapment thing. And I'm not saying that, like, you know, he, 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 I think he's, you know, that he has supplied weapons to other organizations around the world the U.S. doesn't like, but I'm talking about in this narrow case, that's not even being talked about. Um, so it's really, that's wild. And then you have, you know, you talk about, like, 
that that since the diplomatic uh, you know relationship lack thereof really between the U.S. and Russia, and this goes back to I mean I remember a clip of Morning Joe back in like late April where uh, Dana Bash's ex-husband, the guy Jeremy Bash, who's like just the ultimate spook character, is on with Joe Scarborough and says that you know we have to extract a blood payment from Russia for like their their invasion in Ukraine. You know we need to bleed the Russians and not miss this opportunity. Um, and it like, of course, Starborough talks, it was then responds that you're right. You have to Putin's useful idiots in the U S have to hate America, have a special huge hatred of America to believe that U S actions got us here. And it's like that kind of thinking, like within the beltway, within the establishment, within the council on foreign relations type people and all that kind of think tanky world that has got us to this point. And I think that we can't say that enough. And that, um, that it's it closed off the space for there to be any meaningful diplomacy, any meaningful negotiations over the ending of this war, over the return of Brittany Griner, because we have taken this maximalist stance. Uh, I mean, the people, the leadership of the United States, um, and by extension in Europe and the collective West, that, uh, you know, that, that Russia must pay a blood price and, and, and that we, and, and they must be humiliated. And therefore, this is where we are. Yeah. And, you know, this blood price and the humiliation of Russia is is continuing to, uh, you know, rear its uh, head in the ideology of some athletes um, who are calling for the banning of all Russian athletes from competing uh, in any uh, sport. Uh, until this war is over. So this is uh, actually something coming from someone named uh, Vladislav Haraskovich. I hope I pronounced that name correctly. And what, what does this person have to say? That was pretty good. Okay, good. <laughs> I mean, he's basically saying that because, you know, a lot of Russian athletes were on stage with Putin when they, uh, you know, when, when he had the, the big stadium event, and I think it was in Moscow, um, shortly after the beginning of the special military operation, wearing you know Z's on their chest, um, which was at Luzhniki uh, Luz- Stadium, um, and uh, it was a mass rally, and that they're not calling him in particular and asking how he's doing and whatnot. Um, that yeah, they need to be completely banned, um, and I, I, and I guess indefinitely. And he said until they pay reparations to Ukraine. So what he's setting up here, and the Guardian publishes this like just a com- just completely ridiculous position as like a serious type, you know, moral kind of argument that we all need to wrestle with and contend with here. And uh, this is on the heels of Wimbledon just having their Russian free and Belarusian free, you know, exhibition tournament that didn't even count for points with the ATP um, tour <laughs> because of that that exclusion. Uh, and you know, he basically says that this guy quote, in my opinion, all Russian athletes should be suspended from international sports until the army leaves Ukraine territory and until they pay reparations so that all the all sports buildings can be rebuilt. Until they do that, the idea sounds stupid. I mean, but just think of what this means, though, in context. I mean, um, under this logic, that you know, as long as the U.S. was, was in, in Iraq illegally, uh, why weren't U.S. athletes banned then, right? Uh, we're, we're still stealing oil in Syria, right? We're taking the oil, <laughs> so to speak, in, in, in about a third of Syria. Right. Um, you know, why, why aren't U.S. athletes banned? 
I mean, and, you know, it's not, not just for not just the U.S. There's all sorts of you can look at the U.K. You can look at France with all sorts of actions they take. Let's just let you start playing this game. It's a never-ending game, and, uh, and it's, it's. I mean, I guess I can understand it if you're directly affected by war and you live in a country. I should you know, have a you know little sympathy for how it affects your sort of overall analysis, but nonetheless, for this to be published in the Guardian, it's a uh, it's pretty important to push back on the insanity of uh of these kind of claims and these kind of this kind of rhetoric. Yeah, definitely. Just further proof that the ideological war against uh, Russia and the rising tide of Russophobia continues, and we have to continue to fight against it, even in the sports arena. But we're out of time for this segment. want to thank you, Nate Wallace, so much for joining me today. We'll be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Yes, indeed, folks, we are back. It is Friday, July 8th, 2022. And in 20 minutes, we'll be opening the phone line so you can reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary. But that is not the only way you can do that because there are so many ways for you, our allies, accomplices, and comrades to reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary in Washington, D.C. You can do that, as I said, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to us on sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble, rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. And I am very happy to hear from and be joined today by Jeribu Hill, founder and executive director of the Mississippi Workers Center for Human Rights. Jeribu, sorry, Jeribu Truth Teller, how are you doing? Trying to make it over here, Sister Jacqueline. Mm, Me too. I think I've talked too much today. So I want to hear Your thoughts on the newly signed executive order on abortion uh, that 
Joseph Biden just signed, uh, protecting contraception access. He signed the executive order directing agencies to take steps to protect access to abortions and the privacy of patients seeking reproductive health services following, obviously, the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. And, you know, this executive order directs the Department of Health and Human Services to submit a report (laughs) within 30 days on additional actions the agency can take to protect and expand access to contraceptives and abortions, uh, including the abortion pill that's already approved by the FBA. It also uh, also calls on uh, the Department of Health and Human Services to launch a public education campaign on access to reproductive health services. I, Jeribu, I thought that there would be a little bit more meat to this executive order, but to me, it sounds like window dressing on paper. It sounds like a PR stunt, and I am curious what you think about it. Yeah, and, and I have to say that for the most part, since this administration took office. I felt that way many times about various measures uh, that were supposed to be broad and sweeping, supposed to be answers to some of the campaign promises that were made. I have really found more and more that it is, just as you say, it's window dressing, it's a Band-Aid on a cancerous sore. I have yet to really see any proactive steps to address the issue of the ruling itself and what the ruling really means in terms of women who are already very, very vulnerable in a broken uh, health, if you will, health care system, which probably was always broken, uh, especially as it relates to poor black and brown women in particular. So it just seems to me that this is a way of trying to appease both sides, trying to make sure that you don't step on any toes, trying to be as safe as possible while trying while doing something, because to do absolutely nothing is completely unacceptable, given the fact that many promises uh, were made during the campaign. So I agree with you that uh, I don't see these uh, steps that will be taken. I don't see this report being the answer, another bureaucratic report. Uh, We have reports that are issued to courts all the time about uh, hate violence in the workplace as a result of lawsuits, and still there's hate violence in the workplace. So this notion of enforcement of, you know, the Band-Aid solution is problematic, and and the way you have described it is absolutely right. Uh, It is an unacceptable, um, you know, response to something that has the not just the potential, but has the actual reality of pushing women's rights back 50 years or more, uh, and not only women's rights, family rights, people's rights back 50 years or more. So uh, I, I believe that most of the organizations that have been part of the reproductive rights movement are righteous in their attempts. They've done good work. But what I feel like is missing so often is that independent, radical voice, that anti-system voice, that anti-capitalism voice, that voice that rings out and talks about what this measure, what this ruling 
really, really means in terms of the black community, uh, what it means in terms of Deep South states' rights, because the essence of what the Supreme Court came up with was to leave it to the states. And in a Facebook post that I did a few days ago after the uh, ruling, I said that um, leave it to the states, like lynchings, like Jim Crow school conditions, like police brutality, like all of those things, leave it to the states has been some of the most uh, horrific experiences that our people have ever had, especially in the South, but not only in the South. So I'm, I'm disappointed overall. And I think you're right in saying that this does not go far enough. I think most of the things that we've seen, most of the measures so far have not gone far enough, including uh, not addressing the, the core issue concerning poverty, which is the wage issue, not addressing that, pulling it from the original stimulus package. And as far as we know, it has not been put back in, the, in, in any, uh, you know, pack, package going forward to address widespread poverty, extreme poverty, systemic poverty, cyclical poverty without a living wage starting with $15, but certainly that's not actually a living wage either. But starting there without a commitment to raising wages and lifting up the lives and the quality of life, I should say, of everyday working people, there's no real attempt, there's no serious effort to uh, deal with the issue of poverty, as, let alone uh, saying that you are going to dismantle poverty or you're going to get rid of it altogether. So I agree with you. And you know what, Jerubo, I think there's a part of this discussion about the overturning of Roe versus Wade and what you just mentioned, the impact that this will have, not just on women's uh, reproductive health, but on family health and in particular, black and working class and poor families. I get the feeling that one of the reasons it is very difficult for some folks in our community to speak out and speak up about the need to defend women's reproductive health is because it's tied to this moral issue that I think we still grapple with. So we don't really, I think sometimes we don't full-throatedly give voice to how this issue impacts on a very basic material way the lives of poor black working class and oppressed women. And I'm, I wonder if you can help us with that today for folks who are listening who might be thinking, I know this is important, but I just don't have the words to say that uh, that that don't sound like I'm defending something, quote unquote, evil. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do understand what you're saying, and I've been surprised in some of the circles that I find myself in uh, where there is a debate in some some organizations are debating whether or not this is our issue, uh, the issue of abortion, and meaning our in terms of black people. And I'm shocked in some ways because uh, some of the folks that I've heard ask that question certainly are uh, privileged up in terms of education, in terms of access uh, to privilege and access to, you know, uh, 
being included where our people are often excluded, uh, saying things like, is this a black issue? Is this our issue? Um, and I think it's part of the, the features, uh, you know, of patriarchy in general. I think it's mm-hmm. to do with uh, a women's a woman's body never being considered her own, and uh, the issue of a woman's right to choose is bound up with uh, this whole notion of a woman having to be subservient and having to be an obedient, uh, sort of quiet um, uh, participate participants in the family and certainly in society as a whole. And I think there are remnants of that, but I think they're bigger. They're big swaps, big, big pieces of cloth, not just remnants, probably, uh, you know, yards and yards of cloth uh, of this that still exist where um, folks have their own religious underpinnings and their sense of what is moral and what is not moral. I think a lot of it is rooted in social hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. No, because of the types of relationships and the, the complications regarding relationships, that certainly there are those who have had to finance abortion. Yet they also, if they're in these places where they can vote, uh, they're going to vote down the issue of abo- the right of abortion when, in fact, they have had to uh seek that out for someone that they were connected with who didn't want to have that child, okay? Or they didn't want want the person to have that child. So I think it is tied to the patriarchy. It's tied to uh, what we call male chauvinism, but actually male chauvinism is one of the byproducts of the patriarchy. So I think it's tied to that. I also think it's tied continuously to white supremacy because of the burden that this ruling places on those who are already locked out and burdened uh, by a system that was never created to include us in the first place. And we have a unique history to uh, all things reproductive, all things in terms of creation. We have a unique history, uh, having been forced to bear the children of slave masters, having been forced to uh, lay still in our cabins when when the slave master came and did his bidding, having been forced over the years to be looked at with uh, the stink eye, so to speak, when we even address our issues of sexuality and our issues of rights. So this, to me, cannot be separated from the original sins or from the system itself. Absolutely. And and particularly as we are talking about now a Democratic administration, an administration that is supposedly run by the political party that is supposed to be the opposition party to the folks who are, you know, the the, the outright overt white supremacist, fascist, patriarchal, sexist monsters, right? The, the opposition party, the Democrats, is actually led by a man who has been anti-abortion pretty much uh, unapologetically for all of the political career that I have known uh, about him. Uh, Joseph Biden has said on the record, stated publicly at one point that he did not think it was a woman's sole decision about what she should do with her body. Uh, And further, we look at the deal that he uh, just made, which seems to be on ice because it was uh, subjected to the scrutiny of the light. Uh, Somebody opened the back door and revealed that deal that he made with Mitch McConnell to get what? I don't know, but to appoint an anti-abortion 
judge to a federal bench. And we're the subject of those back deals over and over again. If only, if only we could rescue our minds, like Bob Marley said, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. If only we could. And if only we would stop giving away everything to this party, okay, that black folks have elected many a president. But our lives continue to be hanging in the balance. Our issues continue to be pushed to the back, back, back burner until we come to the table knowing our power, knowing what we have, knowing the bargaining chips that we have, that we're going to continue to fall back and step back and acquiesce to those who have no intentions of restoring or, and I should say, shouldn't say restoring because we've never really had these rights, of giving us equal protection under the law, giving us the rights that we as human beings so richly deserve. And you're absolutely right about Joseph Biden's history. You're right about his history in terms of reproductive rights. You, you, we have talked about his history in terms of being a segregationist and uh, statements that he made in his youth regarding his children, not wanting his children to go to school in the jungle. Mm-hmm. And that referring to okay what was that referring to so but we forgive and forget all things every time we lose our minds forgetting all things and the, the last election those of us who stand as revolutionaries we know that election to be something that the people should be proud of it was an anti-trump campaign it was not a pro-biden harris campaign it was a campaign to get rid of one of the worst despots that we've ever seen, but certainly not the only bad despot that we've experienced. But it was an anti-Trump campaign, and folks mistook that to mean that we're hook, line, and sinker all in. No matter what the Democrats do, we're just going to fall in line. Well, the days of falling in line and not holding people accountable and not having these conversations such as the ones that you all always have on the airways, you, you push the truth out regardless. The days of not doing that are over, have to be over, especially when we see the role that the highest court plays, the highest court shrouded in politics, politics to the right, 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 politics against basic rights that people have enjoyed for decades. And we see that rollback and pushback. And then we see the president about to enter into a deal to appease one of the worst politicians, one of the worst elected officials, certainly Mitch McConnell, who does no service to his folks either. By the way, poor whites think they have a hero in Mitch McConnell. They do not. It's unfortunate that folks don't look through the class lens and see how important it is to look at class when you're sizing up and thinking about who your leaders are, who your heroes and sheroes are, who are the people that you consider to be movers and shakers to create change in your community. They certainly need to be looked at with an eye, a serious eye toward looking at class and and who they're loyal to, who they are really loyal to. So Biden has these friendships. He was great friends with Senator James Eastland here in Mississippi. They went back and forth thanking each other, giving each other praise. And, uh, And so, yes, those kinds of things we know. We know that those things exist. So it's problematic. It absolutely is.
Definitely. We are going to move to the first break of the hour here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., but we will be back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, friends, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am Jackie Lukeman, and I continue to be joined by Jaribu Hill. And, you know, Jaribu, something else that the Biden administration has not responded to at all uh, is the issue of continuing racist police terrorism, as videos of Jalen Walker's shooting by police just raise more questions uh, as they always do, no no question is ever answered by these videos. And the police are now saying that uh, the 25-year-old black man who was killed last week uh, in Akron, Ohio, by the cops and suffered more than 60 gunshot wounds, most to his back, uh, but was unarmed when he was shot. Now they, you know, they claim they found a gun in his car and a shell casing, which they are claiming, see, this justifies us shooting at someone who was running from them without a gun in his hand over 90 times and hitting him 60 times. I, you know, I don't expect anything substantive coming from the Biden administration at this point, but I I kind of would have expected a comment, something, a badly read message from the teleprompter, a cockamamie word salad from Kamala Harris that she usually does, but nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I made you laugh. (laughs) And I I just, I I mean, Jaribu, I, I, I don't. I don't think I have words anymore. Honestly, I I don't have words anymore for what to say about certainly politicians at the federal level who continue to ignore these issues. But other than just people getting out in the streets and absolutely shutting things down until community control over the police is organized, taken seriously in the communities, and the entire police departments are forced to change because of that activism in the streets. Other than that, I, what, what do you say when the police continue to find excuses for even more escalating atrocities when you don't think they could get any worse? That's right. And, and even just the basic sort of attendant just care for the victims, the, the victims who are left behind, the family members. I remember when Sandy Hook occurred, and of course, feel bad, of course, 
heart hurts for the loss of those children, no question. But I also see the double standard in terms of when our children, when our children's lives are lost in the most savage ways that they've been lost, that there's not that same care and attention. There's not the news coverage that there's a difference between the coverage. There's a difference between whether or not there's even a sense of urgency. And you're right. Uh, Kamala Harris, uh, I'm no fan of hers anyway. I think everyone who knows me knows that. Uh, I see her as a lightweight. I see her as someone who is not honest. And I see her as someone who has a, a problematic past, a problematic history in terms of the criminal justice system and how our black, young black men and women, boys and girls, fare under that system and fared under that system when she was the top cop in California. So I have no illusions about her, right? And I agree with you that the administration has been, has had a, a there's really been a deafening silence regarding these issues of rampant police terror, police, police state, police zones of terror that are specifically located in black communities. And that shooting, that shooting was not a police chase. It was an assassination mm. mistake about it. He probably was dead after the first shot, after the first bullet hit his body. He probably was already dead, but that was not enough. He had to die 60 times because his life had no value whatsoever. And what's going to happen to the murderers who did this? What's going to happen to the murderers? Someone sent me a text the other day uh, saying that, you know, was of course reminding me that it was the anniversary of Brother Sterling's death. Wow. And, uh, what What is going to be done? What's going to be done? What's the government going to do to address this rampant and rank violence, terroristic violence against black people and the fact that our bodies continue to lie in pools of blood. And I agree with you. The only thing is to upset the system itself. The only thing is to render it unworkable by the disruptions, revolutionary disruptions. And I can cite Ferguson because I know that those brothers and sisters over there, they held it down for months in protest of what happened to our, our young brother, Michael Brown. They did not stop. They held it down in protest for months, right? And what they, and what they did, they showed how sustained resistance, how important that is, and how it has to be done that way. Sustained resistance is what we need. So for us, it's really critical that we understand that this is not one, one episode in our lives, this is like a constant, everyday occurrence where our people are shot down under the color of law and not really anything substantial even being said about it. There is a tendency when it is a black person or a black issue of any kind to, to soft pedal it, even to skirt over it completely. And that's when I see Kamala be role being, right? Being the buffer to be there to, you know, calm the savage beast, so to speak, and, uh, you know, say a few little, little lightweight words every now and then. And I love how you described it, how you described her words and how those words hold no substance whatsoever. Don't point toward any opposition to the status quo. And we need to understand that 
because understanding that will help us not to be disappointed at the wrong time. See, our disappointments are misplaced. Mm. We believe that they that we had something coming in the first place. Once we understand that we have never had anything coming since when we were kidnapped, we have had nothing coming. So disappointment is misplaced when we say we're disappointed because this is the order of the day. This is the way we've been treated throughout history in this empire. So, yeah, you're right. There's no real, there's nothing substantial. These police reform proposals go nowhere. They don't really get at the whole issue of policing and how policing from the back in the day when the black codes and, you know, the police, the, the, the night riders rode and they still ride. They don't address that at all. That's not addressed at all. So these are, these are problems. These are things that we see that we don't want to see. And we have to continuously fight back and speak out on these issues. We must. We must do it. And you know what, Jeribu, when you just said that that our our disappointment is misplaced. That made me think of how we are always hanging with bated breath on the decision by the district attorney's office about whether they're going to charge the cops or not. Or, you know, uh, we're waiting for a grand jury decision about whether the cops are going to be indicted if they were charged or not. Or we're waiting for the outcome of a trial if the cops were charged, indicted, and they go to trial about, you know, whether the jury will find a killer cop guilty or not. But I I think we are coming around to the issue of police unions. But how much of an issue is the protection of police unions over police officers who kill people? How much of an issue is that since since you deal with with workers rights and and people, I don't think Jeribu understand that. A police union is not the same kind of monster as a workers union because the cops ain't workers. And there are reasons the police are not workers. They are employed by the state against the people, usually employed by the state uh, against workers for when they unionize, go on strike, protest, that kind of thing. How, How much attention do you think we need to be giving to the way the police union protects killer cops? There is a. There are some folks have spoken out about the fact that the 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 federal. What is it? The FO five. Yeah, the Fraternal Order of Police. That they shouldn't even be considered a union. That they should not be a part of the AFL-CIO. I don't think they are a part of the AFL-CIO, but they shouldn't be part. They shouldn't be considered a labor union. They're agents of the state, just as you said. They should not be considered union because. They are not what we would call workers in the sense of wage earners who really think about their families and the bottom line. These folks are sworn in to protect property and to protect the rights of the privileged, okay? They're sworn in to protect the white power structure. So, yeah, no, I I think it's a contradiction for them to be embraced in any way as part of a labor movement or labor union. And if you notice— uh, they have never really uh, been in solidarity with various struggles. That particular type of union is there for one reason, to protect cops when they kill people. Right. That's what their job is, to protect cops when they kill people. 
You know, and as this case with Jalen Walker continues to unfold and, and you know, just just as an aside, there's going to be a, a, a vigil here in Washington, D.C. later on this afternoon um, uh, sponsored by uh, the uh, National Alliance Against uh, Racist and uh, Political Repression. Um, you know, the, the police have said that they initially pulled Walker over for what they call an equipment violation. So let's just say it's a broken taillight, right? And and then uh, they say that they, they uh, uh, chased him because uh, they thought that he shot, they thought that he shot this gun from inside the car. Now, we don't know if the window the uh, you know of the of his, of the driver's side was rolled up or you know we don't even know it has not been confirmed that the bullet casing that was they claim they found in the car actually came from that gun we don't know it has not been confirmed that the gun was fired that that has not been con- confirmed um but you know the police always always use i feared for my life Always used, I feared for my life, because in the pursuit of this man running away from them, Jeribu. Exactly. How are you fearing for your life when someone's running from you? Come on. And they're unarmed, and you got all the firepower. How are you in fear of your life? It's insulting to everyday folks when they come up with these theories, because everybody watches Law and & Order and all these police programs. They know basically that none of that is true. Okay, you're chasing someone who poses no threat to you. At the very least, the person is, you know, charged with fleeing from the police or, you know, unlawful fleeing or they're charged with obstruction of justice. But that certainly is not a cap. Those are not capital crimes. Right. So to gun someone down the way you did shooting the person 60 times, killing the person 60 times, shooting at them 90 times, that is really showing your contempt for black life. That's showing your absolute hatred for black life. You would never have shot a white man or a white boy 60, 90 times and, and wounded him, mortally wounded him 60 times. You would not have done that. So it was, it was with rage and hatred that these officers emptied their weapons, emptied their revolvers or whatever types of weapons they were shooting uh, on this man and killed him 60 times. And, you know, the wild thing, that, and, and I keep thinking about this, Jeribu, every time this kind of thing happens. For, for, first of all, you know, it, it doesn't matter what we do. It, as, as far as the police in this country are concerned, we deserve a death sentence for doing it in their presence. It it honestly does. And if and if people haven't gotten that by now, I just just look at just look at the the the, the laundry list of of things that Black, uh, Latinx, and Indigenous people have done that the police said we needed to die for. Being in our homes, uh, being at an address that was incorrect that the police got incorrect to serve a search warrant, uh, playing in a park, a, a child playing in a park, uh, minding our own business on a corner in front of a bodega in New York City, reaching for our wallet to identify ourselves to the police. That was Amadou Diallo. Um, having a registered, licensed gun and trying to tell the police that I'm not reaching for my gun, I'm reaching for my wallet. That was Philando Castile. 
not having a gun. That was any any anyone. And now now it is the threat. Of, so you have it. So you have a legally registered gun. You're shot dead. You you they think you have a gun. You're shot dead. You're in your own home. Uh, 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 Brianna Taylor, you're shot dead. You, I mean, the, the list goes on. So but but it, it, it amazes me when these type of traffic stops happen, Jeribu, in particular, because. The police have these nifty laptops where they run your license plates and it's connected to the Department of Motor Vehicles and they have your address. So if you have a broken taillight, if you have a license plate that is not being displayed, if you've got a bumper hanging off the back of your car, dragging down the street, causing sparks, they could write you a ticket. They could send you a ticket in the mail. Just like the DMV does when you pass those speed cameras speeding. I know I've gotten a few of those. I'm working on the lead foot. I am. I didn't even know I was being watched. That, there, that part and that part. So so there is this this part of policing when it comes to these particular issues where the police are not satisfied with just sending somebody a ticket in the mail for a fine that they have to pay. No, they have to stop people in order to find additional things to charge them with Jeribu. And I think this is like the connection that that another one of those connections that we're missing here. The entire, you know, traffic stop, police stop, completely unnecessary. Right. And planting evidence when you know you made a mistake. You go back and you try to plant, you do plant evidence, you get throwaway guns and, and whatever other types of evidence you think you need to prove that you were justified when you were not justified. Absolutely. Well, we're going to pick up on this on the other side of this break. We will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, And as always, we're your guide to connecting with political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Jeribu Hill. And we have a caller on the line. Mo, tell us what's on your mind. Yes, um, I'd like to start out. I, I called in on Wednesday, and uh, I was quite critical of uh, Reverend Barber, particularly around his uh, support of the Ukraine. And uh, I, I don't mind being deferential to you guys. And the reason I'm saying that is because you guys, uh, you know, it's in other words, I'm not too big uh, to say maybe I was wrong or not necessarily being wrong, but your response, I thought, you and Sean, was out of love. It was very, very revolutionary because it was instructional. Yes, you can be critical. You can be critical of support of Ukraine. But the bigger bigger issue, or if there's a bigger issue, as far as our community is concerned, 
it is just the preponderance of our people living in poverty, and that needs to be addressed. And that is something that he's doing a very good job at. And, and I, I just was calling to say, you know, thank you for that instructive moment. However, my question is, and it's somewhat of a continuation, but it has to do, I know you guys are fervent believers in political education, and I stand as a witness to that because what you shared with me was very instructive. And I would like for you and Ms. Hill to kind of address how do we get, particularly our people, African-American people, uh, away from this uncritical uh, allegiance to the Democratic Party? Because I think if we could accomplish that, I think that we'd be closer to kind of getting the demands or at least addressing demands and moving in a direction that we need to as a people. So I'll stop there. I don't want to sound preachy, but I'll just, it's a, it's a way of just saying thanks for instruction. I needed it, and uh, I appreciate what you're doing. And you and Ms. Hill continue to do the good work. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Mo. Appreciate your call. I hope to hear from you again very soon. And, you know, on that note, I, I, I am also, you know, very, very critical of Reverend Barber's statements about Ukraine. And I'm also critical of the people around him who I, I doubt they challenged him very much because he is Reverend Barber. And, and that there there doesn't need to be that kind of of um, ideological confusion in regard to this Ukraine issue, particularly if you are reviving Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, assault against militarism, racism, uh, uh, and poverty. However, understanding that the people who need to have that ideological clarity uh, presented to them the most are going to be there uh, supporting those efforts, even even as, you know, some there are some, you know, shady issues regarding support for the Ukraine war. And, and as I raised as I was out there passing out flyers for my organization, the Black Alliance for Peace, how can you have a poor people's campaign when we're sending fifty four billion dollars to Ukraine? That's the poor people's money. Um, those contradictions need to be raised among the people who are not aware of them. And I think that is what we were trying to get at. You know, I, I am not one to uh, criticize anyone's organization in public. That's I'm old school. That's just me. That's just that's just how I do things. We we keep internal uh, uh, disagreements and, and beefs or whatever in-house. That's just how I roll because um, the state does enough spying <laughs> of us and we don't need to make it easy for them and, and pit us against each other. But but I do think that my personal feeling is that wherever the people are, even if they are somewhere um, following or in support of someone who is ideologically wrong or unclear, if the people are there, then I need to be there to help them 
clear up some of that ideological confusion and to provide the political education that maybe they're not going to get from whomever they are there supporting that I know I've gotten and that I can share. But that's that's how I look at that situation. And I and I appreciate uh, uh, your comments, Mo. But, um, you know, Jaribu, what do you think is what is the answer for us to to expand political education for uh, black folks in particular to to break from this, you know, just unquestioning devotion to the Democratic Party. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, and you and I touched on it a little bit before, but I think the problem that I see with uh, self-appointed leaders and uh, in some cases pleaders who basically uh, polish up and shine up uh, the Democratic Party's program, uh, which has yet to really, really address uh, the critical issues concerning black lives. I think that when that happens, when leadership in these organizations do that, and the constituents or the members of those organizations follow that that program, that sets us back and pushes us back and keeps us from, you know, the forward motion where we need to be. And in terms of what I saw with some of the organizations, and I agree with you overall about, you know, blasting organizations in public, unless they are shown to really, really be outright pigs, outright exploiters of our people and deceivers of our people. I think you're right. The in-house internal struggles that we need to wage with people who are otherwise righteous but might be unclear, those are struggles that we need to wage. But more and more, I see these demagogues as ambassadors for the Democratic Party. I see them being clearly ambassadors for the Democratic Party and aligning themselves with whatever the political platform is of the Democratic Party without questioning it, without critiquing it, without really addressing how out of touch the Democratic Party is in terms of the real struggles that black people are waging, not only for life and the liberties that we're denied, but also just for basic needs, for basic needs, anti-poverty, anti-racism, anti-all of the isms that affect our lives, and I don't see any real platform uh, that addresses those. I see lip service being paid to that when to some of those issues when, when election time rolls around. But once they've been elected again by us, then I see us folding our arms and saying, okay, what a relief. We have Biden and Harris now. We don't have to worry about Trump. So I see the comfort, the level of comfortability, the false sense of security that we always lull ourselves back into instead of challenging these parties, challenging both of these parties, right? Challenging the two-party system when you can't find a two-party system anywhere else in the developed world. The only place you find a two-party system is the United States of America, this empire. And two parties that, in some ways, demographically and uh, racially and genderly, look a lot like old white property owner men from back in the day. So, yes, you have a blip. You have now and again, you have a blip. But in the main, the party shows up looking a lot like back in the day. And so to bring politics into the 21st century, 
if that's your if that's what you you're you're committed to doing, then what you have to be prepared to do is confront the contradictions within the Democratic Party. You must confront those contradictions, like the ones that were pointed out earlier in terms of the weak stance that they have on uh, eradicating poverty. Why do I say it's a weak stance? Because they don't have a program that would usher in and make real a national livable wage. If they were seriously about eradicating poverty, that would have been one of the first things that they that they tackled and addressed. Issues like health care, issues like policing that ends up in mass killings. When are these issues going to be addressed by the Democrats? Since that is where black folks place all of their hopes and dreams. Black folks, brown folks place all of their hopes and dreams on the Democrats. And the Democrats know that, and they, they enjoy that comfortable place because they know everything else is worse, worse, worse than they are. So they count on us just going with the lesser of two evils formula and not holding them to account for things that they could have addressed, issues that they could have addressed, policies that they could have put in place. But the bottom line is these these leaders or whoever they are in the Democratic Party are not opposed to the system that is responsible for our exploitation and our demise. And that's the system of capitalism. They are certainly not opposed to in any way the system of U.S. imperialism and how it splits its tentacles all across the world to dominate and oppress people everywhere they find themselves. And you're not going to see those critiques. You're also going to see them show up being sympathetic and accepting of gratuitous gifts from the, the, the false, fake state of Israel. Many of the elected officials in the Democratic Party will acknowledge that when they ran for office, they received money from the state of Israel. So these are contradictions that we shouldn't be able to just live with. We should be raising these contradictions to the highest heights and the deepest depths. But that's not what we're doing. We're always thinking, well, we have this. If we didn't have this, we wouldn't have anything. Well, luckily, our ancestors didn't leave things there. Luckily, they didn't say, well, as long as we have uh, food, bread, water, then, you know, maybe the slavery thing is not so bad. Maybe we shouldn't resist and try to overthrow it. But what did they do for all of their lives? The resistors resisted and sought to overthrow that diabolical system. But today, people are so entrenched in the status quo and, and so entrenched in this theory of the lesser of two evils, that's why we can't make any revolutionary progress. Absolutely. And a shout out to uh, Manny Nile in the chat uh, and shout out to everyone in the by any means necessary chat on Rumble. You guys make this show uh, a lot more fun than it already is. And it's already a lot of fun to do. Manny Nile said about how to educate or expand political education propaganda. We need to get a strong propaganda apparatus going, a network of different channels, outlets, etc. Absolutely. I mean, I look at uh, Jeribu, some of the, uh, especially the younger folks that that I organize with, like the folks at Hood Communists, they, you know, and, and members of the 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 Black Alliance for Peace, they've got 
uh, um, uh, stickers with QR codes, you know, posting it uh, so people can scan the QR code and go to the newsletter and get political education. You know, we try to uh, uh, attend events in, in uh, regional areas and pass out flyers, of course. You know, there are alternative outlets. There's, all, you know, there's us, there's he, we here on Sputnik, there's Black Power Media, there's, you know, there there is a a a burgeoning i think network of uh black radical voices um that is emerging but i i i feel like because of 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 the the coalescing of the left forces around the world and i do think it's a coalescing that we're seeing among the uh working class poor indigenous peasant class folks from from Colombia to Nigeria to, you know, all over the world, I, I, I feel like we have to step up our efforts. I feel like we're kind of uh, uh, getting into this on the back foot. And I'm wondering how you're feeling about where we are in this global struggle that is going on to topple what you, you know, what you just said, this, this entrenched power that's oppressing us all. Yeah, and I think you are, you hit, you hit the nail right on the head. We are not anywhere. Uh, we continue to not understand that local is is global. You know that if we're if we're fighting poverty in the Mississippi Delta, we are in solidarity and in unity and in familyhood with people in our beloved on our beloved continent in places like South Africa, where people have never seen a break even after apartheid in terms of poverty and the lack of real political power. So, yes, internationally, we are not where we should be. And many times over, because we tend to focus only on the domestic struggles and we tend not to make those links and those connections, then our movement is not as strong in terms of solidarity and in terms of victories. Our movement is not as strong. If we can't see the connection between the Bangladesh uh, laundry, I'm sorry, uh, garment workers and uh, the sisters at Bessemer who tried to organize a union uh, in, in, against Amazon's uh, practices and uh, employ, employment practices. And we don't see the connection between Walmart workers in Bangladesh, India, and in Soweto, South Africa, and Walmart workers here in this country, the same struggle, same fight, same enemy, then we are not really in sync with the international movement that we need to be a part of. So more and more, we need to make sure that our forums, that our conversations, everyday people conversations, where are the, you know, we do rights cards about various issues from renters' rights, where they set aside $200 million in, in Mississippi to help people keep from being evicted during COVID. And every day I get a call from somebody who was either about to be evicted or evicted, and they had their application in with ramp, and they still were slated to be evicted because the landlord was not forced to honor that the fact that they had an application pending and they were still evicted. So where where are we in terms of seeing that these bread and butter issues should be and must be part of our international human rights struggle? And would we make the connections between global poverty and global set aside, if we make those connections properly and we connect with our people and we share with our folks, 
this is happening to you in Greenville, Mississippi. It's also happening to someone who looks just like you in Soweto, South Africa. Making the connection, showing people that poverty is not just something that black folks in the United States and white folks in the United States experience. It is an international problem that is shored up and perpetuated by the system itself, the system of global capital, racialized capitalism. Those systems shore up poverty, have to maintain poverty in order to keep those systems afloat. And once we break it down and we start trying to do some real organizing with folks so that it validates what they've been feeling all along, people know from the time when I was a child, I remember hearing people say, it's the man. I got to get this man out my pocket. I got to keep the man off my back. I got to. I got to close, lock my door, and look peek through my blinds when that landlord comes because I ain't got his rent. Everyone knows the source of their oppression, but what we need to do is really, really formalize and actualize real popular political education so folks know, like the millions of Chinese peasants who walked around with red books in their pockets and understood what capitalism was, understood what class struggle was. You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. When I mention that, people say, ooh, the Cultural Revolution, you're talking about that. you gotta, you got to look at movements. you got to study movements with a dialectical view, right? With, through a dialectical lens, you got to study and see what was good about those different movements. What worked? Well, what worked in that movement was the fact that most people were not illiterate. What worked? What works in, in terms of the revolution in Cuba? Ninety-nine point nine percent of everybody is liter has literacy. In this country, we have sixty percent or so people who are actually literate, and most people are functionally illiterate because. Schools that they've gone to, and because of the lack of real equal access to quality education. So, how do we make these things, these local issues, how do we understand more about how these local issues, whether it is the issue of statehood in D.C., that's a franchise issue, that's an issue of disenfranchisement and dispossession of black people in a whole state right now. They say it's not a state, it's the District of Columbia, but that is a geographic location where black folks do not get to vote for their national leadership. So that, and that resonates with people in other countries who experience that type of totalitarian government. And you know, you preached a whole word and Wadi in the chat uh, gave the closing sermon saying international prom problems need international solutions. And, you know, we, the working class, uh, uh, the uh, uh, black workers, uh, women workers, indigenous workers, peasant farmers here in this country and around the world, we are all suffering from the exact same problem. It is capitalism. It is all brought on by colonialism, by imperialism. It is all upheld by white supremacy, by patriarchy. And in some way, we are all affected by the exact same problem. This is an international problem, capitalism. That is what imperialism is. It is the forceful imposition of capitalism on other nations by force, using military or 
uh, uh, policy, but we must fight against it in order to defeat it. But we are out of time for today. We'll leave it here. We'll see you next week with a whole new slate of shows. Thanks, Jeribu Hill, so much. Until next time, peace. By any means necessary.